Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by a new face or rather a new voice on the podcast, my colleague Mario Christodoulou. Welcome Mario. Hi Richard, glad to be here. Before we go into the main focus this month, the review about functional movement disorders, Mario is going to run through some highlights from the March issue. So Mario, take it away. Well, for this month's research, Rustam al-Shahi, Salman and colleagues investigate the untreated clinical course of cerebral cavernous malformations, or CCMs. Now, these malformations are prone to bleeding, but the risk of intracranial hemorrhage and focal neurological deficits and predictive factors for their occurrence are unclear. So Salman and colleagues quantify these risks and investigate whether they're affected by sex uh, and CCM location in a prospective population-based cohort study. Also, Hans-Christopher Diner and colleagues compare the effectiveness of a new factor 10a inhibitor, apixaban, with aspirin in patients with atrial fibrillation who are at high risk of stroke but are unsuitable for vitamin K antagonist therapy. Another drug, bapanuzumab, has been associated with amyloid-related imaging abnormalities in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This drug's a humanized monoclonal antibody, which is used to reduce the, the burden of cerebral amyloid beta as a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. So Risa Sperling and colleagues undertake a retrospective analysis of clinical trials to investigate the incidence of these imaging abnormalities during bapanuzumab treatments and to assess associated risk factors. Moving into the field of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, a recently identified hexanucleotide repeat expansion has been associated with up to 60% of familial ALS cases and up to 10% of sporadic ALS cases. But detailed phenotyping of these patients has yet to be reported. So in this issue, Susan Byrne and colleagues undertake a population-based cohort study of uh, Irish ALS patients with this repeat expansion to assess its frequency and to characterise the cognitive and clinical characteristics of these patients. In our review section this month, Meryl Luitz and colleagues describe the interplay between diabetes, hypoglycemia and acute ischemic stroke. Eric Smith and colleagues assess the current knowledge about cerebral microinfarcts whilst highlighting areas for future investigation. And Andre Marino de Luca and colleagues review evidence supporting the contribution of genetic abnormalities to cerebral palsy, discuss previously proposed environmental risk factors, and provide an overview of the rapidly changing field of cerebral palsy genetics. And finally, Richard, uh, for this month's feature, I investigate how the terminals surrounding the NHS reforms and the global economic crisis in general are threatening the numbers of neurological nurse specialists. So a bit about these nurses. They provide a vital service for both patients with neurological disorders and their families, offering them individualised and focused care. But more than that, they also educate patients on how to best manage the symptoms of their disease, as well as providing care and support within the community. I spoke with neurological nurses and neurologists from the UK, USA, France uh, and Australia to get a better idea of how the role of these nurses varied within multidisciplinary care teams around the world, specifically in the context of Parkinson's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy and stroke. I also delved deeper into the facts and figures related to the various cost benefits created by neurological nurses and how cuts to this service, rather than saving money, could in fact end up costing more. Many thanks, Mario. Sounds like some great content this month. And now let's focus on our author interview, which this month discusses a review on functional movement disorder. Hello, Professor Batia, and welcome to the Lancet Neurology podcast. Hello. Your review is on functional or psychogenic movement disorders. Can you briefly define these for us? Yes. These uh, disorders uh, uh, fall under the category, I mean, there are various uh, terms applied to them, uh, for example, medically unexplained symptoms or even hysteria as one of the oldest terms, uh, functional movement disorders. 
essentially these are conditions where the underlying basis is thought to be a psychological one rather than a disease process. For a long time it had been believed that there may be an underlying emotional trauma causing this uh, as a manifestation of the emotional trauma, so rather than a true disease process. The symptoms of functional movement disorders are very varied, but what do they have in common? That's a very good question, particularly because uh, almost all the so-called organic movement disorders in fact don't have a biological marker and usually we depend on our clinical skills to make the diagnosis of the organic, into inverted commas, organic movement disorders. Nevertheless, having said that, there are certain key features which we would recognize when we think about a patient having a psychogenic condition. For instance, the onset of these disorders is often quite sudden, quite abrupt, unlike a slower process in an organic condition. The main key feature is incongruity to a recognized movement disorder. So there are certain features which are incongruous or different uh, from what we know is what happens in a typical organic condition. And thirdly, distractibility or variability, uh, unusual responses to non-physiological maneuvers. Of, you know, for example, you know, if the patient tells you, my tremor would stop if, I, if you press my neck, or uh, for example, they have an unusual response in, in a case, for instance, suspect to have dystonia, a small amount of botulinum toxin miraculously produces an immediate benefit uh, in these patients. This is uh, not a physiological response because we know that botulinum toxin may take a few days to work and here a small amount has produced a miraculous benefit. So that's obviously a placebo response. So in a sum, uh, a sudden onset uh, incongruity to a known recognized movement disorder, distractibility, variability. These would be the sort of key things one would be looking out for to make a diagnosis of functional movement disorder. You mentioned in your review that functional movement disorders have been described as a crisis for neurology. Why is this? And what challenges do functional movement disorders present for neurologists? The, one of the problems with this is the huge burden patients with a psychogenic movement disorders or functional movement disorders are placed on resources. Uh, it's estimated that uh, nearly 16% of patients to neuro referred to neurologists may have a psychogenic condition. Uh, our own our estimate here is that 5% of all our admissions uh, may have a psychogenic basis. So there is a huge burden on, on resources to neurological services caused by these conditions. As we've said in our paper, the, there's an estimated total UK cost for medically unexplained conditions of nearly 18 billion. So you can see that this is a, is a, is a huge, in a sense, a crisis for neurology. Functional movement disorders are considered to be very difficult to treat. What do you think are the most promising or fruitful treatment options? Uh, again, we have sort of alluded to this in our paper. It, this is a very difficult area, mainly because the traditional drugs which we use for intuitive organic conditions don't seem to work very well here. Despite that, these conditions are in fact treated with those type of drugs and usually a patient comes with a long list 
of a number of drugs uh, which they are taking because none of them seem to be working. So people just add another drug. They have a huge list of painkillers. So they're taking a large, sort of they come with like a big pharmacy with them. The idea here is to firstly make the right diagnosis and put the right diagnosis to the patient. And once you have won their confidence, it is important to actually take their drugs off, take them off unnecessary medications and try and get them into a proper program. And we recommend a sort of a common approach of uh, physical as well as psychiatric as well as neurological help. So cognitive behavior therapy, take them off medication, make sure that you don't expose them to unnecessary surgical or other interventions because quite commonly some of these patients at least might seek that if the medical treatments are not working. So don't get them end up with a surgeon who you know does amputations or does sort of invasive procedures. So keep them away from all that. At the end of your article, you talk about the potential overlap between functional and non-functional movement disorders. Can you explain how a functional disorder can be overlaid on another type of movement disorder? Well, the same sort of example, a good example is people with epilepsy or seizures. It is very well known that patients who have true epilepsy also have, can have pseudo-seizures or false seizures, seizures which are not part of the epilepsy. In a similar way, uh, there can be people who have internal commas in organic condition, organic movement disorder, which with some overlay features which are non-organic. So in that sense, you can get a combination of a functional movement disorder, which is superimposed or added on uh, to a organic movement disorder. An important theme in your review is the lack of evidence on which to base treatment decisions and the lack of understanding of the pathophysiology of these disorders. What do you think are the most important directions of research into functional movement disorders? It's a very good question and a very important area. The, as we sort of outlined in our review, for a long time it had been believed that there may be pre-existing emotional traumas which are causing these type of conditions of functional movement disorders or functional disorders. And I think more and more evidence is gathering that this may not be the case. It's important to try and recognize what are the true triggering events which cause a functional movement disorder. How do they set up changes in the brain, for example? We know that if you look at the pathophysiology using, for instance, specialized electrophysiology or, for instance, using functional imaging, you can actually see certain changes which develop in these patients in the brain. Are some people biologically predisposed to getting these type of uh, conditions? Uh, so again, this is an area of research which we need to look at. And how do we change these abnormal patterns which develop in these, in these patients? All of these are very important areas which uh, we need to look into in the future from the research point of view. Professor Bhatia, many thanks for speaking to Lancet Neurology. Thank you. Thank you so much. Those are the highlights from the March issue of the Lance Neurology. Thanks to all our contributors. And Mario, you're still here. Many thanks for joining us. Cheers, Richard. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.